We do serve a good, compassionate, mighty God, do we not? Amen. And Messiah has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom Stephen has been preaching. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. God does all things well. God is sovereign. We're going to see, beginning today, Stephen's conclusion to his message. We're going to see some of the things that happened to Stephen. And by the time we come to this, you're going to say, God does all things well. And I want to serve this God. Stephen has shown how God revealed himself gradually, that revelation spiraling upward or sloping upward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his, his countrymen kept repeating the same mistake. They were clinging to the present and to the material while God was calling them to higher spiritual levels. And still, as ever, they resisted the Holy Spirit and they denied the Messiah, treating Messiah as the patriarchs had, had treated the prophets. And pity overwhelms Stephen. But this pity is mingled with grief and indignation that his own countrymen who had the word of God, who had the revelation through the Holy Spirit as being preached by the apostles, kept denying the irrefutable proof because of the hardness of their hearts. And his words now in this conclusion burn like the words of the prophet of old. Stephen, remember, he's being held on trial by the Sanhedrin. And now it appears as if the tables are switched and the accused is now the accuser. And the Sanhedrin before God are being put on trial. And look at Stephen's conclusion as we look in verse 51 at this message. Ye stiff-necked. And uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, that is the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, that is, as we've seen earlier in the book of Acts, the just one is a prophetic title specific to Messiah. Ye have now been, been his betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. This is Stephen's conclusion that they were stiff-necked in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 to 10. The Bible relates, And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. All the way back at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, just having been freed by the power of God as Moses went before Pharaoh, they saw the miracles and the mighty power of God through the plagues. And as Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the very law of God and to meet with God, 
And they had heard his voice in that mountain and were so afraid. They said, Moses, we cannot stand. We, we, we just, we cannot, we cannot survive hearing the voice of God. Plead that God would speak to you and then you speak to us. How could they deny that Yahweh is the one who freed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, which he himself parted and brought them to Mount Sinai. And now they say that this molten calf was their God that brought them out of Egypt. This represented the Lord, is what they were saying. And this is a God. And God's conclusion is, Moses, I will wipe these people out because they are stiff-necked people. But also, as you see in Stephen's message, his conclusion is that they were uncircumcised in heart and in ears. Howard Marshall wrote, Circumcision was understand, understood metaphorically as the cutting away of pride and sinfulness of the heart. So sometimes we wonder why God made such a big deal of circumcision in the Old Testament. Why is it that some of the Jews in the New Testament insisted that the Gentile believers also be circumcised so that they could be saved because they understood metaphorically that what it was symbolizing was the cutting away of pride and sinfulness of the heart however we know that it is not through an outward ritual like circumcision that a person is cleansed from sin and that sin is removed the bible says that it's with the precious blood of christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot it's the blood of christ that cleanses us from all sin Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. To the people of Israel, God says through his prophets, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Isn't that interesting? That here, Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And God told them all the way back in Deuteronomy, hey, listen, circumcise your heart. Don't be stiff-necked anymore. Here, Stephen, again, is pleading with the very message of God, the very words of the Old Testament, which these men knew. But they were also uncircumcised in ears. How often did Jesus say, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, You always are resisting the Holy Spirit. That word for resisting is a very strong expression. It implies active resistance. It actually uh, translates to fall upon and it's used of an army that falls upon and attacks and tries to annihilate a prey. It means to go strongly against the enemy. These people were not just questioning whether Jesus was Messiah. They weren't just about preserving a pure form of Judaism. They were aggressively and actively completely resisting against and trying to fall upon and destroy Christianity, whose foundation is Jesus Christ. Now look at not only Stephen's conclusion, but Stephen's exclamation. Because we see that the, the response of them was this in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now they weren't biting him, okay? But what it means is they were so angry. They were grinding their teeth. Not just when it comes to this conclusion, they didn't start grinding their teeth. As, as Stephen is preaching through the Old Testament scriptures, the conviction begins to build and they are grinding their teeth. My sister 
used to grind her teeth in her sleep. We had a 40-foot trailer that we traveled in, a fifth-wheel trailer in evangelism. My sister had the fifth-wheel bedroom all the way at one, and we boys shared a room in the very back of the trailer and with door shuts and, and everything in the middle of the night. We would wake up because she was grinding her teeth so loud. Can you imagine 71 people all at the same time grinding their teeth in anger, what that must have sounded like, what that must have looked like? And Stephen is just not preaching some new doctrine. He is preaching right out of the Old Testament to them, leading them to see that that, that they are rejecting Messiah just as their forefathers rejected the message of God through his prophets. And now they are rejecting him and they are grinding their teeth, gnashing. They're barely controlled in their fury at this point. And then what Stephen says in this exclamation completely unravels them. Stephen says this in verse 55, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing uh, upon the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. I see the heavens open. The Holy Spirit gave a special moment of insight to Stephen. I believe that as he's looking up, maybe through a window. Remember, they're in the temple area. The Sanhedrin had, had, had brought him in. They had gathered a council. This was a mock trial. And maybe he is, maybe God just kind of parted and, and Stephen in that moment could see through the wall. And he could see and the heavens were open. And he saw in that dimension where God dwells, he sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. That means Jesus is standing in a place of authority and victory. It means he's alive. The last thing the Sanhedrin wanted to acknowledge. And remember that his countenance when they first brought him earlier in chapter 6 was as the countenance or the face of an angel. The very presence of God reflected in Stephen's face. They gave, God, I believe, gave him not just a vision but the ability to actually see heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. By the way, this is not as he's being stoned. Sometimes we picture it that way. This is as he's on trial in, all right, before the Sanhedrin. And when he says, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, you realize other than the Lord Jesus Christ saying that of himself, that name for Christ is not throughout anywhere else in the scriptures. It is just here. But it is in the Old Testament as well. And it is a prophetic uh, title of Messiah. And Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, when he sees Jesus Christ, sees the Son of Man, all the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. The Son of Man, the Son of God, standing on the right hand of the Father. And he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the resurrection and the life The living eternal son of God and son of man is with the father in heaven in a place of victory and authority. Now in a moment we're going to see that Stephen is martyred. But you know I believe the reason why the spirit of God moved Luke to write this account for our record and add it into the eternal unchanging scriptures is because of the fact that as he saw Jesus in his moments before his martyrdom, standing as a witness and welcoming to heaven, that this account has greatly encouraged thousands and thousands of martyrs through the centuries. 
One writer said, this is the only time that our Lord is, by human lips, called the Son of Man after his ascension. Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, speaking now not of himself but at all, but entirely of the Spirit, is led to repeat the very words which Jesus himself, before the same council, had foretold of his glorification. You'll see the Son of Man. Assuring them the exaltation of the Son of Man that they should have hereafter witness to their dismay was already begun in actual. Stephen had been confessing Christ before men, and as Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, he is standing as a witness of approval, and he is standing to welcome Stephen to heaven, and now Christ is confessing his servant before the Father. What a powerful picture. And that's not just for Stephen. Do you realize every faithful believer, everyone who serves the Lord from a heart of love, in faithful obedience and submission, and by the way, none of us do it perfectly, but those who will do it consistently will hear from the very lips of this same risen Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And Christ will acknowledge us before his father what motive to be faithful to him to endure any persecution or even to suffer martyrdom for his cause now let's look at stephen's martyrdom the bible says then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears you find that ironic he said you want circumcised in ears <laughs> what are they doing they're doing this and they're crying with a loud voice blah, 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 blah. We don't want to hear this. Because they thought what Stephen was saying was blasphemy. They didn't want to hear another word of it. They didn't want to go any farther, not even to get enter into their ears, lest it should sink into their hearts and they be convicted and maybe converted. So they stop up their ears and they shout with a loud voice and they run upon him, they rush upon him. That word is it was one as of a mob. They consider these words blasphemous, so they rush upon him. They resist his witness and his message. The phrase ran at him is a Greek word, hormao. It's the same word used to describe the mad rush of the herd of swine in Mark chapter 5. Remember when Jesus cast the demons out? And they said, please, don't send us out of the country. Permit us to go into the swine. And Jesus permitted them, and they went to the swine, and the swine ran headlong into the Sea of Galilee, and they drowned. Remember that? That's the same word. They rushed at him like a mob. Homer Kent reasons that this was a mob murder rather than a formal execution. Jewish law would have demanded both a second trial plus evidence, which they didn't have, Remember, there were false witnesses. And then, on top of that, Rome did not allow Jews to carry out their own executions. That's why the mob cried out for Jesus to be crucified. Because, they, because the, the Jews said before Pilate, we have a law, and by our law, this man should die. But we can't, we're not allowed to execute him. But in this instance, these men, driven to frenzy, having heard the word of God repeatedly rejected and all the evidence that they had seen throughout Jesus' ministry, through the apostles' ministry, through the message of the word, through the signs and wonders that Jesus Christ did through his apostles. These men consistently, 
obstinately continued to reject Messiah and harden their hearts. Are we surprised they turned into a frenzied mob that turned to murder? It's odd, though, as per the Old Testament law, they took him outside of the city and the false witnesses put their feet, their their robes at the feet of Saul, who stood as a witness. Read it with me. The Bible says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, who were the witnesses? Well, see, under Jewish law, when somebody was in the Jewish court and uh, there are two or three witnesses agreed on the testimony and that person was convicted of that crime, if the sentence was death, then those witnesses had to be the ones to throw the stones. be pretty hard would it not if you were lying bearing false witness to extend beyond lying to the court and condemning an innocent man to then be the one to throw the first rock that would crush and kill him or her how hardened how maniacal were these witnesses as they laid their coats at the feet of Saul and Saul by standing there and them casting their coats at his feet that he wasn't just watching their coats all right he wasn't like a hat check guy you know coat check guy that's not what that's all about so someone wouldn't steal their robes while they were stoning Stephen no what this was about was it was an official thing where when they laid their coats at his feet it symbolized he was an official witness to this isn't it odd how they observe certain things formally out of the Old Testament while ignoring other parts that didn't fit their preferences. And how true that is of so many false religions today. But sadly, sometimes that is true of believers too. In the practical sense that the things in the Word of God that are delighting to us, promises and principles that we think will improve our lives or help us through a rough time. Oh, we rejoice in those. We'll cling to those. But the things that are confrontational and convicting and that call us to a life of holiness and service and sacrifice and self-denial and maybe even martyrdom, we sometimes conveniently ignore those which don't fit our paradigm or our comfort level. Look at Stephen's prayer. As Stephen is being stoned, the Bible says, as they stoned Stephen, this is verse 59. He is calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. When he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, that is the identical prayer Jesus cried on the cross to his father. As he is being crucified, he is presenting to Jesus the identical prayer which Jesus himself had offered on the cross. Stephen renders to his glorified Lord, absolute divine worship in the most sublime form in the most solemn moment of his life as he commits his spirit to Jesus Christ. Stephen's life ended in the same way it had been lived with complete trust in Christ. And Stephen displayed the same forgiving attitude that Jesus had on the cross as we read in Luke 23, 34. He asked God to forgive his accusers and he made made the promise uh, and he made the prayer and promises loudly and publicly. 
Remember, he was being crushed by heavy stones. I did a little bit of research on this, on stoning in Bible times. I hope that you don't have too vivid of imagination plus a very queasy constitution. That's a really difficult combination. So I'm going to try to be a little bit sanitized in this. But what they would do, what the Jews would do to stone somebody is they would take them to a cliff somewhere. It didn't have to be a high cliff. By law, it had to be twice the height of the man's stature. And they would throw him head first to the ground. The first witness would pick up the biggest stone that he was capable of lifting and he would throw it down on the man. He was probably falling on the ground. And if that stone did not crush him to death, the other witness would throw a stone. And if there was a third witness, the third witness would throw a stone. And if he was still dead, then anybody could join in and throw stones. You say, well, why are you telling us that, Pastor Todd? Not so that you'll feel sorry for Stephen, but what you will see is that even in his dying moments, the incredible grace of God that strengthened him to minister in a public prayer that was so loud that it was heard. Have you ever fractured a rib? And then somebody kind of jabbed you in the rib, not knowing that, or they said a joke or something funny, and you tried to laugh and it hurt? Can you imagine bones are being crushed there's internal bleeding maybe a lung is collapsed and yet somehow supernaturally god enabled stephen in the final moments of his life to cry out a prayer of forgiveness stephen was innocent stephen was doing the right thing stephen's heart was to reach these men with the gospel and here he is being crushed to death dying for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet somehow, he gets the strength to stand up. And then he kneels down. He made it very obvious that he was praying. And he prays this prayer. What an incredible, beautiful picture of the forgiving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you wonder how many hearts were touched by that last act. And how many souls were turned to Christ. Saul, who later met Christ on the way to Damascus, became an apostle and a preacher of the gospel, was that witness standing there. Perhaps he heard, most likely he heard that prayer. Was that something the Spirit of God used to tenderize him towards the gospel in that moment of confrontation on the road when he would turn to Christ? And that, indeed, was the last thing on his heart. He preached a hard message. He had a very confronting conclusion. But his final prayer was that these men would find God's forgiveness. And that they would know as his body sunk to the earth and his soul went to be with his Savior that he was not angry with them was not vengeful against them. That he, through the forgiveness of Christ, had forgiven them. So we come to our time of our invitation this morning. What is the invitation? First, do not resist the ministry and message of the Holy Spirit as he ministers the word of God. The Bible says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? So they must hear the word of God. Salvation comes 
when a person hears through the word of God, the gospel message, the good news, that Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary without a sin nature, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross willingly, shedding his blood as the full payment sacrifice, the final sacrifice that satisfied the demands of God's holiness on our behalf. That he died, was buried, and being God, three days later conquered death, took up his life again, and resurrected, and is the living Savior. Don't resist the ministry and message of the Holy Spirit. Every time you resist, just like the Sanhedrin, every time you resist, you harden your heart. You become a little bit more resistant to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to the very peril of your soul. So entrust the salvation of your eternal soul to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's no other way to have eternal life. Do you want the same confidence and peace and assurance that Stephen had when he died physically, that you have eternal life, that your soul is entrusted to the very care of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Then call on him today. Believers, Walk in obedience and fellowship with the Spirit so that you may be filled with Him and have His comfort and boldness in your hour of need. I say this as graciously as I can. But if you walk in the flesh until you get to an emergency and all of a sudden you want to start walking in the Spirit to have God's comfort and God's security and God's help, though God is merciful and gracious, I believe that you will not have the same comfort and the same confidence and the same blessing to the same extent as if you had been willingly walking with and submitting to the Spirit of God all along. So I challenge you now, before the trials come, before the hour of need, submit to Him, call out to Him, walk with Him, be in submission to Him, be taught of Him through the Word of God. Walk in obedience and fellowship with the Holy Spirit so that you may be filled with Him and have his comfort and his boldness in your hour of need. And walk with Christ today so you can stand for him tomorrow. Amen. One commentator said this, Stephen wasn't a superman, but he was a man filled through all his being with the Holy Spirit. Many have little idea how greatly they can be used of God as they walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll ask our pianist to come play a hymn of invitation. Let me explain our invitation this morning. We will not have a come forward invitation this morning, though we often do. The invitation is to those of you that have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is any doubt in your heart, if you don't have that 100% sure, but on the shadow of a doubt, confidence that Stephen had, that your sins have been forgiven, that your soul is safe with Jesus Christ, that if you were to die this very moment, your soul would be with him in glory. Then, at the end of the service, find me in the connection point. I'll sit down with the word of God in a quiet, private place with you, and I'll show you the way of salvation. It'll only take a few minutes. And you just simply put your trust in Christ, the living Son of God, who died and rose again, shed his blood for you. And you can have eternal life. But for those of us who are saved this morning, as our pianist plays in just a moment, would you 
Respond to the Spirit of God. Don't resist Him. Instead, invite Him to work through the Word of God in your heart so that you can stand for Him tomorrow because you're walking with Him today. There may be something else that the Lord through His Holy Spirit just had me say. It wasn't even a main point, but the Spirit of God made it a big point in your heart. And that's what you need to respond to this morning. So listen now as our pianist begins to play. Listen to the Spirit of God. Invite Him to speak to you and then respond as He ministers specifically the Word of God to your spiritual needs. Mm-hmm.